My name is Jeremy. I get the privilege of pastoring and serving this amazing young church with big dreams for the future. And uh, what I want to do is I want to set up where we're going between now and Easter as a church. We have a vision, we have a direction, and we believe that God wants to give each and every one of us for our lives, for our homes, for our church, a firm foundation. And the inspiration for this series comes straight out of the words of Jesus. He's the greatest figure, God, the God-man who stepped into human history, and he preached an amazing sermon in Matthew 5 through 7. It's the greatest, greatest sermon ever preached. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And in that sermon, he told one of the most well-known stories in human history. It was a story about two builders, one wise, one foolish. I want to go ahead and I want to read that to you right now and show you where we're going uh, over the, the, the next uh, season for our church. So Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 through 27. And I said, I'll meet you in Matthew chapter 3. We'll put this up on the screen. Let me just go ahead and read this to you so that you know where this is all coming from. Matthew 7, verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. If you mark in your Bible, I would encourage you to underline does them. Will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Verse 26, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them. Okay, so this is the counter vision. This is what you want to avoid. You might underline that as well. Does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. I think this is so important for us as we're starting a new year. We have a lot of aspirations, a lot of resolutions, a lot of intentions for us to see this story about a wise builder and a foolish builder. So what happens? The wise builder, he built his house the hard way. It was the right way. There was no shortcuts right here, but he built it on the solid rock of Jesus's ways and word. And what it was that founded his house was his obedience to the word. So he heard the word and he did the word and he stood firm through the storm. So then you have another builder, the foolish builder, who built his house the fast way, the easy way, the cheap way. And it was built on the, the ways and words of man above God. And he heard the word, but he didn't do the word, and he was swept away because of it. And so here's what I want to show you from this story. What's this story all about? Well, what this story is about is what this series is all about. And I want to give it to you in one sentence. If you're taking notes, you could write this down. Bright futures are built on firm foundations. So the reason why the wise builder had a bright future is because he built his house on a firm foundation. The reason why the foolish builder had a bleak future and a bad future is because he didn't do that. And I would submit that if you want a bright future, you need a firm foundation because our future is only going to be as sure as our foundation is strong. You ask any builder, you ask any homeowner, if the foundation is faulty, it doesn't matter how good your New Year's resolutions sound, deep down, here's what's going to happen. You're still going to end up discouraged. And it's going to overwhelm you. You're still going to be confused. You're still going to be anxious on some level in 2024 and 
Here's some humbling news. New year, same you. Here's some uplifting news. (laughs) New year, same God. And he wants to give you new opportunities to have a firm foundation more than ever before, no matter your age and stage. And what we see from Jesus is he's very clear on how this happens. It's by hearing the word and by doing his words. So wisdom is living God's way in God's world, according to God's word. So wisdom would tell us that if we're going to get a firm foundation by not just hearing the word, but doing the word, then what we need to do is we need to put ourselves in as many environments as possible that are going to increase the likelihood that we are going to not just hear the word, but also do Jesus's words. And I've got good news for you. You are sitting in a church that is committed to both. We're committed to hearing the word. We're committed to doing the word, and we're committed to equipping men, women, and children to do both. And so as we get started, guys, I just want to get really practical, and then we're going to jump into Matthew chapter 3. So two ways that you can hear the word through the ministry of our church, uh, right here in this environment. So each week in this series, we're going to focus on a foundational topic that will equip us to build our life on the solid rock of Jesus. And we don't think in terms of just sermons, we think in terms of series. And here's why, because a sermon could help you, a series could change you. And so Jesus just told a bold story, let me give you a bold step. Would you, if if you're here and you're church shopping, would you consider stopping? And would you stay with us through Easter? You're like, that's 10 weeks, that's a big that's, a, that's really something big for you to ask. And here's, here's what I want to tell you. Relationship experts say that it takes three to six months before you can actually know someone. Like meaningful, consistent interaction, getting to know them, you know, all their, uh, you know, all their strengths, all their weaknesses, all those things. We have both. I'll go ahead and tell you that. But I would say that it's not that different in a church. What, what happens is sometimes you, you'll just kind of come passing through a church and you'll make kind of some surface level assumptions and judgments about what those people are like or what their mission is, but you don't take the time to actually get to know, like, what is this all about? Is it built on the rock of Jesus' word? That's the most important question. And we believe that just inviting you to come and hang with us until Easter would be a great way for you to hear the word week in and week out. And so if, if you're in town, will you be in church? I know you're traveling. I know stuff, stuff happens. You're, you're going to be out of town. You're going to see family. You're going to go somewhere. That's going to happen. Would you subscribe to our YouTube page? All right? Uh, there's, there's so many ways to access the Word. That's one of them. Two ways you can hear. The second way is this. Everyone on the way in, if you got this reading plan, go ahead and hold that up. If, if you got that. If you didn't, we want to get that to you, okay? Because what we're doing right here is we are coming in close on the, uh, the Gospel of Matthew. So if you go through this reading plan, you're going to read all the way through the Gospel of Matthew, and you're going to read some related scriptures that are going to tie to the topics that we're talking about right here in this room. I don't know how your New Year's resolutions are going with Bible reading. Maybe you've just been nailing it, but maybe you've been failing at it. So here you go. Here's a guardrail of grace. We give you the weekends to catch up. So we've got something here for everybody, and we want you to walk out of here equipped with a good plan to go to the Word of God for a word from God. And if you misplace it, you're just like, I don't know where that is. I left it in the bathroom or something like that. That's okay. Uh, Coastwaychurch.com slash reading plan. We want you to have this. So that's two ways you can hear. Two ways you can do. First, I want to say this. If you are new or you're curious about Coastway, I want to invite you to come and have dinner with us. It's something that we call the weekender. 
And it's happening on Friday, February the 2nd at 6 o'clock. And here's what the weekender is. It happens over the weekend. Okay, so we're, we're really creative around here. We call it the weekender. All right, so there it is. So it happens on a Friday, and it's where you explore and we explain how Coastway Church is committed to following Jesus together, to making a difference together. It's the first big step that you take in our church to say, I'm not just going to hear the word, but I'm also going to do the word. Uh, we're going to feed you a nice dinner. We're going to take great care of the kids if you've got kids. You can go online, coastwaychurch.com slash weekender, or you can go outside. You can fill out a Next Steps card. Guys, get in on this. Our church is excited to grow the family and, and make a difference, and we want you to come and do that with us, and the weekender would help with that. Secondly, how you can do something about the Word. This is for everyone. Get to a community group. Guys, our community groups gather in homes from the coast to Conway, and they're groups of men, women, and children who gather together to apply the Word of God together, to reflect on the Word of God together. You'll get so much more out of this series if you are in a community group, and we want to help you with that. Again, you can go online, uh, uh, coastwaychurch.com, or you can step outside and we can get you connected to a group. So uh, that said, two ways we can hear, two ways we can do. Here's where we're at, Matthew chapter 3. So here's what's going on. Throughout this series, we're, gonna, we're going to primarily pull from the gospel of Matthew these foundational topics from uh, the life and the teachings of Jesus. And let me tell you a little bit, if you're new to all this, you're just like, the Bible's an intimidating book. I don't know my way around. I think there's like two big parts. You're right, there are. There's the Old Testament, all right? And that's pointing ahead to Jesus. There's the New Testament. It's, it's the life and rescue mission of Jesus and looking back on Jesus. So Old Testament, New Testament. Matthew should be pretty easy today. It's the first book in your New Testament. So Matthew is one of four gospel accounts. Gospel means good news. And so there's four accounts. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Let me tell you how those fit together really quick, and then we'll, we'll see this story uh, with Jesus' baptism. So Matthew gives us, a, each of the Gospels give us a lens through which to know Jesus better. So Matthew is Jesus is king. Mark, Jesus is servant. Luke, Jesus is man. John, Jesus is God. So watch, watch how how spot on the Spirit of God was in inspiring the New Testament authors. When you bring that all together, we see that Jesus is the servant king and the God-man sent from heaven to rescue sinners and restore the kingdom. You bring it all together, that's what's happening, and that's why we, give four, we have four gospel accounts, and we call these gospels because they bring us good news. And so the good news is that God in Christ has done everything necessary to settle and secure your salvation. And we're going to see that in vivid color today. We're going to pick up in verse 13, and we're going to see how the gospel is made clear through Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist. The foundational topic that we're starting with is the gospel. I want to talk with you today about why we prioritize the gospel and why it's, it's everything that we need in, in life uh, and the everyday settings where we live, work, and play. And so here's what the gospel involves. The gospel involves repentance, righteousness, and reassurance. And that's, that's what I want to show to you today. So Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, let's pick up. Then Jesus came from Galilee. All right, let's stop right there. Because by now in the Gospel of Matthew, 
The virgin birth has happened. The wise men have come and they've given the gifts to Jesus. And that's Matthew chapter 1 and 2. And now he's grown up. He's probably about 30 years old at this point. He's, he's grown up in a blue-collar uh, uh, backwater town as a carpenter. And it's this no-name place that's off the beaten path called Nazareth in Galilee. Here's what you need to know about Nazareth. Nazareth was nothing. Scholars tell us, archaeologists tell us, that the well in Nazareth would hold enough water for about 100 people. So, I mean, we're talking small town. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody's in everybody's business, right? Okay? Maybe you grew up in a town like that. It's not, it's not the, the, the best, uh, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, but Nazareth was nothing. And you know whenever you're on a road trip, okay, maybe you're like going down a, an interstate in South Carolina or going somewhere, and you stop at a place, you get out, and you're like, no eye contact right here. Get back in the car and let's get back down the road. I'm really glad that I don't live there, okay? Uh, so that was Nazareth, right? It was the place that you, you, you left and you're just like, I'm really glad that I don't live there. So obviously there wasn't a Bucky's in Nazareth because if you know, if you know, you know, when you go to a Bucky's, you want to spend some time right there. So I don't think that that was there. And Nazareth was not a place where you would expect a king to grow up. But we see that Jesus came from Nazareth and Galilee to the Jordan. Okay, I, I want to show you a picture of this river that has a rich history that is linked to the gospel. I want to tell you this because it sets up what Jesus is about to step into and what all of this is pointing to. So 1,400 years prior to this moment when Jesus was about to be baptized by John and start his public ministry, there was a guy named Joshua. Joshua was a great military leader who God put his hand on, who succeeded Moses, who was leading the people out of the wilderness to take the land of promise. And here's, but here was, here was the plot twist. To get into the land of promise, the people had to cross the Jordan River. Now you can go and you can read about this in Joshua chapter 3 and 4. There was a big problem on the day that God was sending them across the Jordan River. There, there were these seasons when it would, the, the river banks would overrun and they would be flooded and, and it would be impassable. And that was the day that God was sending them across. The floodwaters had overrun the banks. Safe passage wasn't possible. And so God commanded Joshua to, to send the priests who would mediate between God and man with something called the Ark of the Covenant, which was a picture of the presence of God among his people into the Jordan River. And you're looking around, and you're like, well, how, how are we going to get into the Jordan River? I mean, it's flooded. And so what the ark was, the ark was a picture of God's presence. So Jesus was the living, breathing ark. The ark was pointing ahead to Jesus, how he would abide with and go before his people. And here's what I want you to see with that history in mind. Joshua 3.17, just take a look at this. It should be on the screen. Now the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly. So they had a firm foundation. On dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. That's the river. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. So in a few moments, when Jesus steps into the water, he's saying, I am the ark of the covenant. I am the true and better priest who parts the waters for safe passage for my people through faith in me. And so it's this, this picture that's pointing forward. And then on another occasion, this is in 2 Kings chapter 5 on the Jordan River, there was this ruthless and unjust military leader named Naaman. And Naaman got this, uh, this, this disease called leprosy. And he was longing to be made well. He needed healing. And he heard about this miracle worker named Elisha. 
And so he goes to Elisha's house, and Elisha, like big flex right here, he won't even come to the door. I mean, he sends his assistant to go and interact with this important guy named Naaman. And basically, he says, hey, if you want to be healed of your leprosy, go immerse yourself in the Jordan River. Dip yourself seven times in the river. And seven in Scripture was a uh, symbol of completion and fulfillment. And so Naaman, basically, he takes issue saying the Jordan is a dirty, undignified river, and he would rather wash in his own rivers back home. And on that note, I just want to say we're a lot like Naaman. As we come to God with a need, and we want him to meet that need on our own terms instead of his terms. And so Naaman, he protests for a while, then he comes around, I want you to see what happens, 2 Kings five fourteen. So he, Naaman, went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. Notice how he wasn't just a hearer of God's word, but he was a doer of God's word. It took some time, though. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Here's what I want you to see. When we allow the good news of the gospel to wash over our lives again and again, we are restored and we are cleansed. We are, we are born again. And so all of these, these events that are linked to the Jordan River, they're all pointing ahead to Jesus. Verse 13, the whole thing, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Now, if, you know, if, 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 in case you're wondering, like, why is Jesus being baptized? Okay, Jesus didn't sin. He didn't need to repent. Like, what, what is this about? We're going to get to that in just a moment. But first of all, I want to talk a little bit about John the Baptist. Okay, so uh, this, is, this is John the Baptist, not to be confused with John the Methodist, who did not come until the 1800s. That was a little bit later on. But what, <laughs> some of you will understand, others just will move on. But the, the point of that is that John the Baptist is less about a denomination and more about a declaration. So the word Baptist, it's, it's a declaration that's being made. John's declaration was simple, repent and be baptized. And, and previously in the same chapter in verses 5 and 6, we saw this, how Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, that's John the Baptist, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. And this is a, a very important word to understand baptism, confessing their sins. So I, I want you to hear the heart behind what I'm getting ready to share uh, about how we apply the Bible around Coastway and how we read the Bible around Coastway. As a church, we want to take God at his word and take our next step. Now, that's a, that's a good way to think about faith, right? Is taking God at his word and taking your next step. And that's why we believe that baptism is a sign and a symbol of conscious, credible, personal repentance. And that's also why we don't baptize babies. The practice of baby baptism. I want to talk about this a little bit because people ask so many questions. There's a, lot, there's a lot in the Bible about this, so we want to talk about this. So the practice of baby baptism is something called paedo-baptism. And the word paedo, it comes from a Greek word, um, a padion, which means a child or an infant. And it's where we get the word pediatrician, you know, a, a, a doctor for a, a child. And so, with all due respect, we as a church, 
we would charitably disagree with our Anglican, Presbyterian, Methodist, Lutheran brothers and sisters, who we will see in heaven, and some other Protestant traditions on this issue. And instead, here's what we believe. We believe in what's called credo-baptism. So a creed, not, no connection to the grunge rock band from the 2000s, all right? No connection to that really weird, creepy guy off of the office. I think he needed to be baptized, if you know what I'm talking about, if you've seen that show. All right, but creed is another word for belief. Believer's baptism. So guys, here's, here's the deal. We're a young church, but we believe some very old things. And one of those old things is believer's baptism, which is by immersion and after conversion as the fruit of personal repentance. And we believe that this is the most faithful application of the Bible's teaching on baptism. And here's, here's part of why. Again, we want to we read the Bible and do what it says. There's no explicit example in the New Testament of baby baptism. There's some inferences that happen here and there, but the explicit examples that we see are believers' baptisms. And uh, you look closely, you'll see John the Baptist and the apostles. They only baptize those who consciously and credibly and personally confessed sins as an act of repentance. Babies do a lot of things. They don't confess sins. We're, you know, we're, we're still kind of waiting on that on a level in our house. And so this is why we call all who have called on the name of Jesus for salvation to take the step of believers' baptism proudly and publicly. And guys, understand, not just about babies, all right? We don't baptize adults who have yet to profess the fruit of repentance. And I, I think growing up around cultural Christianity, maybe that was you, maybe that wasn't you, but a lot of people treat baptism like a ride at Six Flags. It's like this excitement, there's an adrenaline rush, and I can get a t-shirt and maybe a cool picture, and it's kind of what religious people do. But here's what I want you to know. Baptism doesn't save you from sin. Jesus never sinned. He didn't need to be saved. And that to take issue with Jesus being baptized is to say that that's saving you from your sin. No, 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 no. Baptism doesn't save you from your sin. It's a sign that you have been saved. And so who should be baptized? I want to talk about this because this is all connected to the gospel. This is all connected to repentance and faith. Um, four, you know, there's kind of four categories. This has been helpful is, you know, you were, you were dripped at a very young age as an infant, and that was not a picture of your profession of faith. Bless God for the parents who desire for our, their kids to grow into a profession of faith. But if, if that was before you could make a conscious incredible a profession of faith, then this could be a step. Another is you've delayed baptism. You know it's important. You, you believe that it's what Jesus commanded and, and what the Bible talks about. You've just not done it yet. You, you, you look to Jesus as your rescuer and king, and you've delayed it. Others of you, there was a disorder to your baptism. This was my story, by the way. Um, I was baptized at, at four before I knew what was going on. It was kind of like a ride at Six Flags. That looks fun. That looks cool. I'll do that. But it wasn't until I was 19 years old um, later on in, in life, actually it was my early 20s, that I was like, this is mine, and I want to be proud, and I want to be public with it. And so I was baptized following my own personal belief. Maybe that's some of you. Others of you, you recently decided to follow Jesus. And this, if that's your story, this is your step. 
And we're talking about this because we believe that salvation is a big deal, and we believe that having clarity on your own story in salvation is a big deal. We believe the commands of Jesus are a big deal. And so if that's your story, baptism's your step. And we want to give you the opportunity on February 11th to be proudly and publicly baptized. And so if you want to learn more about this, you can stop by Next Steps before you leave, coastwaychurch.com slash baptism, and we would love to be able to celebrate with you. Verse 14, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. Okay, baptism is a picture of salvation. So what John is saying, I need to be saved by you. You don't need to be saved by me. And do you come to me? So in other words, John the Baptist is like, I'm a sinful man. You are righteous. We need to turn this around. And so even John was confused because he knew that baptism did have to do with repentance, and Jesus didn't need to repent, at least not of his sins. But if you know how the gospel works, Jesus is in my place, he would come and repent for our sins in our place. Verse 15, but Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all, underline this, righteousness. And then John the Baptist consented. So why was Jesus baptized if baptism is a sign of repentance? And um, I, I want to give you three simple words that will help maybe bring this into focus right here. Uh, identification, demonstration, and salvation. That's why Jesus was baptized. Identification. So when you are baptized and you step into the waters, you, you, you're there, and this represents your life before you are immersed in the water and before you emerge out of the water. You, that, that represents your old life before Christ. And so I, I was a sinner, and I needed to be saved. And so with, with that sin, it has to go somewhere. And so when we get baptized, we say that sin is going on Jesus at the cross. And he's going to wash my sin. He has washed my sins away, and I'm forgiven. And what Jesus was saying is, I'm going to so closely identify with sinners that I'm going to stand in their place, and I'm going to say, your sin's coming on me, and I'm going to show you what I'm about to do with it. And so identification, we, we cast our sin on Jesus, and Jesus casts his righteousness on us. And so identification next is demonstration. Jesus wanted to model what he was going to uh, command us to go and do. And so he's a good leader. He doesn't just stand up in some ivory tower and say, you go and do it and figure it out. He says, no, I'm going to go before you. Uh, a leader gets out front and goes first. And so he's going first to, to model this. And then salvation. So salvation, what well, baptism is a picture of salvation. And so your old life before Christ, and then you're buried with Christ. You identify with him in his baptism. What is that about? Jesus would be plunged underneath the floodwaters of sin and judgment in our place on the cross. But on the third day, he would emerge in power. And he would come back from the grave, having conquered sin, Satan, death, and hell. And it's a picture of so great a salvation. That's why Jesus was baptized. So pick up in verse 16, and we'll keep reading. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Do you remember the dove that Noah sent out after passing through waters of judgment? He sent out a dove to go and find dry land. He sent out a raven and a dove, and only the dove came back. 
And the dove came back as a, as a picture that salvation had come and that rescue was accomplished. And in this moment, the dove of the Spirit is a picture of that peace and is a reminder of that promise coming and saying, your ultimate rescue is coming through Jesus. So it's going to rest on him and it's going to be found in him. The Bible, it all fits together. And then verse 17, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. All right, so here's what we see. In Jesus' baptism, we behold the beauty of the gospel. And the gospel is kind of like a label that we just slap on anything that's like important in the church. What does it actually mean? The gospel defined, I want to give this to you. The gospel is the good news of God the Father in his great love for us, sending the Son to overcome death with life and renew his kingdom by the power of the Holy Spirit through the witness of the local church. You could simply say it as Jesus in my place, and that's a faithful way to talk about it. But what is coming together in this definition right here, and I found this helpful because it talks about the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Okay, there, there was this cosmic collaboration that happened in salvation. Every member of the Trinity is essential uh, to the gospel. And so you see Father, Spirit, Son coming together to accomplish salvation and restore the kingdom of God through the church. And you see the church. You see the mission, and you see new life. Now, so that's the gospel defined. Let me give you the gospel described. So the gospel described, so we're talking about a foundation, right? Get a firm foundation. So the gospel is not just the foundation. It's not just the front door. It's the entire house. And I think the big error that we make is thinking that the gospel is just how you get in the front door of the Christian life. And it is. But it's also how you get in the house. It's how you stay in the house. And it is what fills every room. And so I want to give you three foundational truths about the gospel while we're together. The first foundational truth is this. The gospel calls us to repentance. The gospel calls us to repentance. This is in verses 13 and 14. I want you to see how it says that Jesus came, in verse 13, to John to be baptized by him. And then what does John say in verse 14? John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? So John's response is the essence of repentance. Notice how he says, Jesus, you don't need me. I need you. I need Jesus. Jesus doesn't need me. And that's repentance. You're like, well, you know, Jesus is really fortunate to have me at church today. Jesus is really, really I'm glad he's got, he's, he's got my name on a jersey. Glad I joined the team, right? Um, he doesn't need you. He wants you. He's, he's all-sufficient. He's self-existent. We are, needed by God, or we are wanted by God, we're not needed by God, and repentance is a picture of how we respond to his desire to bring us back and buy us back. Because before repentance, what happens? Okay, before repentance, I have my back on God and my face on sin. But repentance is turning and trusting in a new source that's bigger and better. And so in repentance, what I say is I'm not perfect, but I'm now pursuing a new direction. My back is on sin. My face is to Christ. 
And that's, that's repentance. Repentance is turning from sin and trusting in him. And I want to tell you about two counterfeits of repentance that are very prominent in our society. The first is this, revision. Revision. This is reverse repentance. And, and here's uh, another word for this might be tolerance. This is what the word tolerance has come to mean in our, in our moment. God is supposed to repent to man instead of man repenting to God. So what we need to do is we need to get our out-of-touch cosmic grandpa who doesn't like how we dress or the music that we listen to back into the moment, and we need to catch him up and baptize him in the spirit of the age. Give him a PR makeover from his mean and cranky middle school years so he can be relevant again. And so basically we'll say, like, I'll help make God relevant again by revising his archaic teachings. He'll repent to us for what he said about eternity, what he said about sexuality, what he said about spirituality, what he said about morality. And this shows up in some subtle ways that sometimes we're just not even, like, paying attention to. I mean, this, this could be a figure like Joe Rogan, who has the number one podcast in the world some very interesting things to say. A great question asker has some interesting guests on his show. I mean, he's not a Christ follower, so obviously he's not going to be lifting Jesus high, but a lot of Christians look to Rogan as like a prophet and are, and are listening to what he's saying, what his guests are saying all the time. And all truth is God's truth. If, if something true is said on a show like that that's not Christian, then guess what? It's true because God made it true. And welcome to the party, everybody else. But in, in this moment, we need to be really careful because there's going to be a revision that's going to happen if those are the sources that we're allowing to be primary. It's okay to learn, but you do need to be careful in some of these examples. One more explicit example of this is little Nas X with his supposed Christian era self. There's lots of revision that's happening there. If you know, you know. Um, there's no fruit of repentance that's happening right there. And what do we do? We pray. We pray that that changes. But then there's regret. All right, so revision's one way, regret's another way. This is Judas. Now, this might be a fresh thought. Did you know that Judas and Peter actually did the same thing? But they responded in different ways. Peter betrayed Jesus. He denied Jesus. Judas betrayed and denied Jesus. One was regretful, the other was repentant. One's life came to a sad, sudden stop, the other went on to build the church. So there's a difference between repentance and regret. Regret is remorse over getting caught. Repentance is remorse over hurting our Creator. And there's a big difference. Matthew 3, 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Let me give you three fruit-bearing aspects of true repentance that are rooted in the gospel. Number one, belief. Number two, brokenness. And number three, changed behavior. First, I want to start with belief. And this is not a belief, just intellectual assent. I agree with this. That's where cultural Christianity is driving off the cliff. I agree with it, so I'm living it. There's a big difference, hearing and doing. Remember that story that Jesus told? So belief do you, in your heart of hearts, believe, can you say this, that I am a sinner by nature and choice, that my sin has separated me 
from a just and holy God. That there's nothing I could ever do to remove my sin or restore myself in my own strength. Can you say, I believe that Jesus has done everything necessary and Jesus alone to rescue me from my sin by dying on a cross and in my place. Can you say, I believe in Jesus as my rescuer and king who gives me eternal life and it's worthy of my entire life. Those are the basics of Christian, historic, orthodox belief. Do you believe that? That's where it starts, but it doesn't stop there. Then it moves to brokenness. So it hurts me to know how much I hurt God. He's been, so, he's been nothing but good to me. He's been, he's been nothing but patient with me. He's been nothing but gracious with me. And for me to go on sinning because God will forgive me is like cheating on your spouse because you know they'll welcome you back. No, you, you have a heart that hurts when you hurt those who you love, who first loved you. It's so different. It's kind of like, you know, sometimes your kids will get in trouble or maybe, you know, you could think back in this, you know, you get in trouble, you know, spouses argue sometimes, it happens. Okay, we're being real today. But, you know, maybe you go in a different room and you're not talking anymore. Are you no longer married? Are you, are you no longer related? No, but you've lost fellowship. That's what happens when you allow sin to take root in your life. You're in another room of the house. God's still there. He didn't kick you out. But you're not talking. You're not close. And it feels very different. And that's brokenness. You want to do something about it. And then there is behavior, change behavior. By the way, we are not accepted because of our good behavior. We're accepted because of Jesus' perfect behavior. We want to be clear on that. Okay? Um, but, but grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. There's a big difference right there. So um, when I have repented and I've turned my back on sin, my face on Christ, the things that I think, I think more about that. The things that I say, I think more about that. The things that I do, I think more about that. The places I go, the people I bring really close to my inner circle, uh, the priorities that show up in my life, all of that looks different. And it, it, it actually brings you this strange joy that you never expected because you know, when you're born again, the Spirit of God implants new desires and new affections inside of you so that you want what He wants. He's that good. And you're like, I didn't, I didn't like to read the Bible before this. Uh, I don't know if I can keep listening to this music anymore. I didn't realize that's what they were saying. Anybody? All right, me at 19, all right, on display, being real, okay? So there's belief, there's brokenness, and there's a change in behavior. Peter said in Acts 3.20, if you live a life marked by repentance, refreshment will fill your life. Refreshment will fill your marriage. Refreshment will fill your home. Refreshment will fill your school. Refreshment will fill your place of work. Refreshment will fill our church because God's ways are good, true, and right. So the gospel calls us to repentance. Number two, the gospel fulfills all righteousness. So understand this. Um, for sins to be forgiven, righteousness must be fulfilled. When God looks at our sin, he doesn't just like, you know, you know, pat us on the back and say, ah, don't worry about it. It's good. It's good. We'll just, we'll just move on. No. 
Forgiveness is a financial term. In order for forgiveness to happen, there must be a debt that gets collected. Okay, and, and God can either be your debt canceler or he can be your debt collector. You get to make the choice on that by how you respond to the risen Jesus. But in order for sins to be forgiven, righteousness must be fulfilled. That puts us in a tough place because we are wholly unrighteous. Jesus is holy and righteous. There's got to be an exchange that happens. Verse, verse 15, here's what we see. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. Let, okay, baptize me. Okay, this is more than what you think. This is a picture of what I'm about to do. For thus it is fitting for us. Very interesting word right there. Takes us back to Genesis chapter 1. I'll show you in a moment. For us to fulfill all righteousness. So that word us is interesting because it seems to have, and there's a lot of people out there that know Greek better than me. Maybe some of you know Greek better than me and know Hebrew better than me. I passed. That's it. Okay. So, uh, but that word us is very interesting. It seems as if there's a double meaning right here. Jesus and John the Baptist, us right here, present tense. Okay, we are knowing and we're doing the will of God, so we are fulfilling righteousness. That's part of what this could probably does mean. But second, Jesus and the Trinity, us, is fulfilling righteousness entirely and eternally. And here's what I would say. I think this is faithful. Matthew 3 is a replay of Genesis 1. Creation, very good. New creation coming through Jesus, very good again. So if you go back to uh, Genesis chapter 1, you see the triune God creates a world that's very good. And he looks down and he says this, I'm very pleased. It's very good. The same thing that he says over Jesus right here in this moment. So in Genesis 1.1, I'll just read this to you. Maybe you jot it down if you're taking notes. In the beginning, God... Siri, not now. Um, in the beginning, God... <laughs> You can laugh or you can cry. We're going to laugh. So, uh, God, yeah, me neither. Um, how do I keep going? Um, <laughs> God, Genesis 1-1, God the Father created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Darkness was over the face of the earth when Jesus stepped in. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, so the Spirit of God descends on Jesus in the waters, bringing order from chaos, bringing life from nothingness. And God said, Jesus is the Word made flesh. There He is. He was present. Let there be light, and there was light. Jesus comes and He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of eternal life. God, three in one, Father, Spirit, Son, founded and fulfilled creation. And I want you to notice how the triune God shows up again at Jesus' baptism. The Spirit anoints, the Father speaks, the Son obeys, working together to bring a new creation. And then, Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us fulfill all righteousness. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So man was originally made in the likeness of righteousness, but then we took on the likeness of lawlessness, thinking we knew better as a bunch of revisionists. Genesis 1.31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, he was very pleased. It was very good completely righteous. The father looks at the son and says, I am bringing a new creation. I am restoring my kingdom and it's coming through the witness and the work of my great son. All things new. And it's no secret, Adam and Eve blew it. You and I blow it. 
we forfeited righteousness and we subjected all creation to a curse. And then here comes Jesus, the second Adam, to reverse the curse of sin. How does he do that? By fulfilling all righteousness. His sinless life. Hebrews 4 says that he was tempted in every way as we were, except he was without sin. Through his substitutionary death, 1 John 2, 2 says that he paid for sin once and for all. And then we see in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, the certainty of the resurrection, that that payment that was made at the cross cleared and was accepted for all time for all people who would turn and trust in him through repentance and faith, payment accepted. And at his second coming, he can be your debt canceller or he can be your debt collector. Jesus rose, so we must respond. And that's what the gospel is all about. We admit that we're sinners by nature and choice. Have you done that? And we believe that Jesus alone has done everything necessary to settle and secure our salvation. Do you believe that in your heart of hearts? And then we confess that Jesus is our king. He knows better than we. He has more power than we. And he's our rescuer. He's our only means of salvation. This is how you begin the Christian life. This is how you progress in the Christian life. You never stop saying, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Amen. And so number three, here we see, the gospel is our ultimate reassurance. Verse 17, a voice from heaven said, just like at creation, very good. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So it's interesting. It's a deep, deep idea when you start thinking about God becoming a man. This moment was not a revelation for Jesus. This moment was reassurance for Jesus. It's a deep question, like why did Jesus need to be reassured of something that he had always known? Well, think about it. Every part of Jesus' identity and security is about to come under fire. He's about, he just heard a voice from heaven. In the next chapter, next week, come back, you'll see this. He's going to hear a voice from hell. He's going to be tempted by the devil. He's going to be rejected by his own people. He's going to be betrayed and denied by his disciples. He's going to be crucified in place of sinners. Going into all of that, his father reassures him that who he is and what he's about to do brings God nothing but pleasure. I had a moment with Eleanor recently when I felt the need to reassure her. We were, um, we were having dinner, and some, some teenage boy who wanted attention had a really nice car that his parents bought for him, and he was uh, revving it up, okay? And so that was my analysis of it. And I, it, I felt like, hey, I needed to tell Eleanor, hey, hey, sweetie, there's a certain type of boy that's going to want your attention, and when he does... Uh, I want to reassure you that he's going to need to go through me. Yes, you tracking? Okay, anybody? Right. And so I want to reassure you that I'm always going to be there for you. Okay. And uh, she jumps in and she says, oh, daddy, I know. And here's what I'm going to do. If he keeps following me around, I'm just going to tell him that my daddy's going to come and take him down and then take me to Chick-fil-A and we're going to have a daddy-daughter date. actual footage that might happen. I want you to know that anyone 
who would seek to displace your attention and do you harm for the sake of you following Christ, your father's going to take down. Your father's going to deal with it. And one day, he's going to wipe every tear away. He's going to right every wrong. Every sad thing is going to come untrue. And it's because of the gospel. For those of us who are in Christ, we need this reassurance. And here's why. Because Instagram and TikTok will never look at you and say, I'm fully pleased with you. You could always get one more like. Because our host culture will never be fully pleased with you. Because the people we work so hard to please, our spouse, our boyfriend, girlfriend, peer, parent, kid, boss, will never be fully pleased like the pleasure that the Father speaks over Jesus and speaks over you when you're found in Him. And through it all, flaws, failures included. When God looks at you in Christ, He doesn't see your sin. He sees His Son. He sees you clothed in righteousness, in robes of white, and He's pleased. Some of you, what you need to hear today God is pleased with you in Christ. And because of that, you need to turn from sin, whatever you're pursuing other than Him, and you need to start following Him. Others of you, you need to hear, God is still pleased with you. Because you've walked through some things, you've done some things, and you're like, I don't know. It's not your righteousness, it's His righteousness. And that's what He sees. Guys, in Christ, on your worst days, you couldn't lose it. On your best days, you couldn't earn it. The gospel reassures us. Where you fail, Jesus fulfills. And by faith in Him, we can all have a firm foundation thanks to the gospel. And I want to pray that that would happen right now. Would you bow your heads and open your hearts?